Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from a business development leader and sales leader who built her career at CEB, now Gartner. She's a keynote speaker. She's the host of Winning the Challenger Sale podcast, and she made the shift from enterprise sales, account management, and new logo sales at Challenger to Chief Evangelist. Jen Allen, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Thank you so much for having me here. It's probably the most excited I've been for any podcast because you are a big part of the reason behind how and why I got this job. So I'm really excited to be here. Cool. Well, I know you did all the heavy lifting and we will get into your origin story. Um, And another fun thing for you probably is this is not a topic that you're talking about in any of the other podcasts you're guesting on. Not as much as I would like, that's for sure. Cool. Well, here we go. So I'm going to start with a question that we're starting all these conversations with which is, Jen, in your view and your experience to date, and this is a big, messy area, none of us know what the job really is ultimately, but we're working on it. What is the most important job of a chief evangelist? To me, the most important job of the chief evangelist is to humanize the problems that our prospects face. And I think the reason for that is so many of us in sales, our our journeys in learning how to sell are all about learning how to sell our solution so, so rarely do those journeys include learning about the customer's business problems beyond just the category we sell in. So to me, I, I take it as a huge responsibility to be able to talk in the language of our prospects such that we create that demand to get them to want to come and explore the solution. So that's how I see it. Oh, there's so much in there. Before we get to uh, you know, a typical follow-up here is going to be something like, what are some of the other roles that maybe aren't as important, but are like the functional, let's define the role. But you said a couple of really, really interesting things there that I love to for you to, to go in on. Um, one of them is humanize. And the other one is demand generation. Because we'll we'll pr- probably have it's hard to have these conversations without at least addressing the idea of ROI. Can you measure it if if so, how, et cetera, et cetera? But I think the demand gen piece is something that kind of speaks for itself because it's something everything it's something everyone is constantly working on. So start with the humanized piece. Like why is it important to have a human in this role or function rather than um, a set of documents? <laughs> a set of documents? So to me, I think the most important reason is because so often in sales and marketing, we make the problems sound like they fit in this perfect little box, right? Like this is the problem and this is how our solution fits it. And I think anytime I talk to an executive, The problem is never that simple. There's always nuance to it, right? And so I think what executives lean into is when they can see someone talking about a problem that quote unquote gets it, right? Like, ooh, they see it's not as simple as, hey, I've got a sales problem. Let's plug in a training solution. There's all these other things that make that hard. Like a document is static. A document doesn't account for where that document is being uh, uh, consumed or absorbed by the buyer. 
And I think that's why on podcasts, on webinars, on events, whatever, like I think many executives are drawn to people that really, really seem to intimately understand the nuances of the problem instead of a one size, one size fits all approach. So good. And I would extend that to my stack of documents that you were kind enough to pick up on, like it was a good thing to say. Um, you know, our, our emails, our landing pages, all of these things that are approximately static and we expect to um, generate demand in, in some way. Um, you also touch on like a key thing. So I've been hosting the Customer Experience Podcast for almost four years and hundreds of episodes. And this idea of um, tech versus human comes up all the time. And so this, and I'm sure you live in this space too, focused on sales and like, what's the role of the salesperson? Where it where does the tech stop and the human start? How do humans and tech work better together? But this, you know, this nuance, subtlety, adaptation to the room, adaptation to the person, adaptation to the moment, adaptation to that interesting nugget and the way the person said it, right? Not read it off a transcript as a bot and said, oh, when I read these words, um, it means this thing. It's like, it means something different to be um, expressed in a human way. So I really like those themes there. Go in on the demand gen piece too, like, and I think this, this will probably bleed a little bit into your origin story, perhaps. But um, go into demand gen. Talk about the chief evangelist role and demand gen in particular. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. This is definitely going to bleed into the origin story because I'll share what I was shocked to find out, which is, you know, I've always looked at LinkedIn as a prospecting tool, right? So I sell a solution to sales leaders. Now I would go on LinkedIn so I could learn as much as I could about them so I could target my email to them. And that's what I thought it was for. And it wasn't until last year in March when I realized if the more I started posting about problems and underappreciated risks and costs of that and different perspectives on it, something really common started happening, which is I would get these very senior sales leaders popping into my DMs saying, hey, like, I've always been kind of skeptical of Challenger, but I read that post and it felt really similar to the, the problem my team is up against now. Would you be open for a conversation? And I tell you what, Ethan, every time I get on the phone with one of these guys or gals, I would say, I got to ask you, like, why don't you just fill out the form on Challenger? And they said, for two reasons. One, I have no idea what kind of salesperson is going to be the recipient of that form. If I get that guy or gal who is like one deal away from their quarter, you know, goal, and then they throw me in here and they're trying to sell me when I'm really just trying to learn, that that is an unenjoyable experience. I've lived too many times. I've been burned too many times before. And the second thing they said is because the way that you worded the problem felt so close to home. For some reason, I feel like you get me, even though you're a stranger. And so that was wild to me because I'm thinking like. How many of these lurkers are out there? You never see heads of sales posting, like maybe once in a while, but they're not like, you know, they're not your primary people that are showing up in your feed. So once I saw that, what I realized was, my goodness, there are so many opportunities where our customers are going to learn and we're just not present there. We're not having a conversation about the problem. We're out there like pushing LinkedIn ads being like, here's our solution. Here's our solution. When in reality, what they're looking for is just learning about the problem, not yet learning about the solution. So good. First, of course, it's probably has to be challenging to sell to senior sales and revenue leaders because they know all of the things. And so this <laughs> idea of like, I didn't want this thing that I know that I do to our prospects as well. I, I didn't want that to happen to me. 
I would sell to sales leaders all day long because I will say the thing that I love is they respect the game. When you do the game well, they're like, I see you, you're doing it, you're not doing the same old motions. I would pick that any day over a CIO or, you know, another function. So they're they're hard critics, but when you win them over, there's nothing like it. Yeah. So I mean, I, and I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to miss how important what you shared is. So you're an individual contributor in a sales role with a sales quota, you decide this isn't just for information scraping and targeting with the same canned sequences or cadences or touches or whatever we do. It's This is a place to learn and share. Um, one of the most unique things about the sales role is that you're typically talking with multiple people in your ICP every day or every week. So you have unique information to share, right? Like they're living their own life with their own problems inside their company, inside their market. And sure, they maybe have a peer network where they can commiserate with other people who have the same role and similar challenges, but probably not as often as they need or want to. And so when someone shows up speaking their language, I mean, what an amazing privilege to have someone reach out and say, I felt like you you get me, even though you don't know me. And now just uh, just to draw back on my observation on your first response, we could look at Netflix saying, this is a 98% match for you. We watch it and we go, man, that was actually a 99% match. Netflix, you get me, right? But not in the same way. Like this, and you're not going with, you know, six figure, seven figure problems to some bot or interface with like bot or interface, you get me. And so they're just, I, <laughs> we just robot lady, you really get me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not, not at that level because it is about trust and understanding and nuance and messiness. So there you go. That's humanized and demand gen from Jen with my commentary. Um, so, so break this down. Um, what, what are like, if you were to list three or four activity areas, like when someone's like, Jen, what do you do now that you're a chief evangelist? What are, you know, I know you host a podcast, you obviously guest on podcasts. What are some of the activity areas where you get to the end of a week and, and you say that wasn't just busy, that was actually really productive? Yeah. So this is a fabulous question because what I'm learning through time I spend with you and other people who have this role is it is so different across the board. I think the, the what should dictate how we spend our time as evangelists is always the business problems that we're looking to solve. So for example, like just be totally transparent here at Challenger, there's a lot of people who know the Challenger sale. They love it. There are so few people that know Challenger Inc. exists or out of the ones that do believe that they actually need a partner like Challenger Inc., right? And so for me, a big part of the motivation or responsibility behind my job is to, one, close the gap that like doing Challenger is not just throwing the book in front of your sales team and doing maybe a keynote on it and then being like, hey, we trained our team in Challenger. Um, but two, bringing that to life by giving prospects something that allows them to see the gap. So my job is not to go on a microphone and be like, yo, everybody, Challenger Inc. exists. Like people will be like, that's cool. Turn off the mic. My job is to show them, here's what you're missing by doing it just with a book-only strategy or a homegrown strategy, right? And the the very interested will, will poke up. It's not for everybody. Not everybody is going to work with us and that's okay. But that's the, the core fundamental problem in my job that I'm solving. So as a result to your question, what my week looks like is, one, um, I spend a lot of time learning um, both in channels where my customers go to learn. So LinkedIn's a big one for me. 
um, but also different events, different um, associations where people belong to. What is the conventional wisdom of our prospect universe? And the reason I learned that, and I spent a lot of time learning and watching, it could sound like you're just sitting at your desk scrolling through LinkedIn, is because it helps me understand what we need to disrupt to get customers to view the world the way we want them to. Now, in turn, I then take that, I share that back with our sales team, our SDR team, our marketing team, our product team, our leadership team, to help them understand here's what we're up against in terms of the, the conventional wisdom or conventional thinking of our teams today. So we cannot go out and use X, Y, and Z messages because they don't attack that, right? So that's one big area is making sure we are staying ahead of where conventional wisdom is teaching and taking our, our customers. Second place is tons of content creation. Now, I'm not someone who posts six times a day. There's certain weeks where I like maybe post one or twice, once or twice. But I think it's important to have a repeatable, predictable content motion and develop a community of people who are really rabid fans of the perspective that you teach. Again, not the solution that you sell, but the perspective that you teach. So that comes for me in the form of a weekly podcast and a monthly webinar and then content on LinkedIn. I'm actually not on TikTok. I know everybody else is, but for me, those are my channels. Um, and then third is um, sales support. So I do, I spend a lot of time coming in and supporting sellers on deals, particularly in group meetings where you don't want it to be the one versus many. And you want to have someone who has no skin in the game. If you lose the deal, great. If you don't, whatever. It's like, I'm not making a dollar more off of it to come in with an honest perspective to say, look, here's some of the things that I'm observing. I see these patterns perhaps maybe happening in your business. Tell me where I'm wrong to kind of offload some of that responsibility from the seller as well. So those I think are the, the three big, big areas that I spend time on. Love it. Really helpful breakdown. One follow-up on that first piece. Are you inviting yourself into team meetings? Like, is, And I'm asking mostly for myself. You know, so what I'll do is when I, when I have something useful, I usually go to the person that leads a team and say, hey, when are your next, you know, meetings coming up here over the next week or two? Um, I've got this thing that we were talking about and I, you know, I'm ready to, to share it in a constructive or, you know, put together manner for your team. Um, are you inviting yourself in or do you have a standing invitation? Like, how are you communicating with the team so that you're not just another voice, let's say in Slack, telling them that there's something that's really important? <laughs> so this is a phenomenal question. You and I have talked about this, but for my particular situation, I report up through our global head of sales. But there's all sorts of different reporting structures. I think the single biggest challenge that I underweighted coming into this job is the interface between all of those functions. Because I'm not in a position where I can tell anybody what to do, to your point, right? And so what I found particularly helpful is for me to understand the mobilizers within my own company. And when I say mobilizers, what I mean are people, regardless of title, regardless of responsibility, who are motivated by insight and who have the internal credibility to go and act on an idea. So like on our product team, our head of product, fortunately for me, is a mobilizer. But there are other functions where I actually go a click down because I know there's more power in having that person message up versus me trying to message to that top person. So a big lesson, candidly, I've been learning this year, Ethan, is like, how to navigate the internal politics, how to come in and say something without someone feeling like I'm calling their baby ugly. It's taught me a lot, I think, that I can translate into the sales space as well. Love it. How much um, How much time do you split 
if you can even like estimate internal versus external. That's, I mean, it's one of the, among the questions I get from people who are in this role or thinking about this role or thinking about putting someone in this role. That one comes up all of the time. Like, and, and you spoke to, you know, you are doing internal and external. Um, how do you balance that? Or how do you think about it? Is it just as, as, as the task in front of me or as the mission demands or, um, or yeah, work? So yeah. In the beginning, like, I don't have my name on a book, right? Like I'm not, the one was like, break the door down, get Jen and Hiller to speak, right? Externally. So the way I structured my job was in year one, I'm going to spend 50% of my time on internal activities and 50% of my time on external activities. And the internal activities were things like getting involved in SDR training and helping with messaging for marketing and content creation, right? Because what I knew was this is a very strange title. We're owned by private equity. There is a high risk of them looking at it and being like, what is this line item? So I felt like I had to demonstrate value internally while I built my external value. So I would say it was like a 50-50 split in the beginning. Now, over time, what's happened is that shift has gone far more towards like 80% external, 20% internal. So a big consideration, again, that I completely undervalued stepping into this job is learning how and when and where to say no and learning how to provide an alternative solution that didn't involve me. So it got bad two months ago where I was working like 16 hour days because I didn't know how to say no. And then it got to the point where I was so burnt out that I was just mad all the time. So I think a big lesson for anybody looking to take on this job is to one, know how to say no, and then also really clearly explain the trade-offs. Meaning if I spend my time on this internal thing, it means I can't do this external thing over here. Help me understand how do you want me to prioritize this? I just wasn't doing that enough in the beginning. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I mean, there's so much here and I do not want to miss the idea of you going into an active sales process as someone who is not commissioned and what that means. I don't want to miss that. So I'm just saying it out loud for both <laughs> of us. Um, and to, and to promise people, I'm going to try to tie that a little bit more um, back with you. But, you know, as you're, you know, you report up through the global head of sales and the global head of sales doesn't necessarily know how urgent or important some of this other stuff and other teams are. And so as I would just observe and, and kind of, I guess, ask, you know, it takes a lot of judgment on your part to figure that out. And there is no arbiter of that because, you know, the head of customer success or customer service, that's their world and they really need or want your help on this thing. Um, but the global head of sales doesn't necessarily have any insight into how important or how urgent that is or isn't. So there's like, there's, there's no arbiter. It's you. Is that, yeah. is that, that's a hundred percent right. Like, and it, part of it is the tricky thing, at least for me, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, is like, you're saying no to things you actually want to do. So yeah, one of the things I want to do everything, right. <laughs> Which is why we're in these jobs. But like, I was in the situation where we were getting all these requests from existing customers to have me speak, like join an SKO or things like that. And I was so excited because I'm like, yes, I want to do that. I love that stuff. But then I ran into situations where I actually had to decline other things that would have contributed to new logo generation. And that was when I had that moment where I'm like, I have to be mindful that every time I say something yes to something that isn't addressing the core business objective that my job is to accomplish, it means that I'm saying no to something else. Even if I don't physically say it, I am saying no to that. And so it was things like that, experiences like that, that forced me to say like, 
you really got to stick to the, the objective of the job that you have and resist the ego pull of like, oh, it's fun to speak at these meetings because it's just not contributing to the goal in hand. Yeah, I've definitely said no to things that required uh, spending three days out of the office for a 30 minute in-person event. <laughs> Which, but here's the, it's, it's, it's still really hard because the, the lie that I tell myself when I, or it's not necessarily a lie because we'll never know. That's the problem. That's where we're going next, by the way. You know, you're at some level, you are planting seeds and they, you know, you're not a direct response ad. You are sharing a point of view with the world. You're challenging conventional wisdom. You're provoking, you're discussing, you're creating a sense of community and none of that stuff converts tomorrow, maybe or probably. Um, and so, you know, that thirty, that three days and thirty minutes I just said, I had to walk back from immediately because you never know who's in the room, right? Yes. And so, um, and then the other thing, and then I'll turn it into a question: is like, who's in the room is more important than how many, right? Yeah. And so, I would so much rather give an impactful presentation to thirty-two people, any of whom could stroke a six-figure check than to do something that's, you know, less directly business outcome related for, you know, 10x the audience. Um, I've done both. At one level, it's direct practitioner. At one level, it's the person who can say yes on behalf of a lot of direct practitioners. So it's a careful line. So for you, um, just because we're kind of at the doorstep with you kind of doing this um, internal calculus of, um, you know, how, what is the direct business impact? Should I say yes? Should I say no? That month is starting to feel full. That week is starting to look full. Um, what, what do you have any specific measurable results? And then we'll kind of bridge this into your, into the, your direct origin story. Like when you were set off on this mission through a lot of your own initiative and effort, and someone said, yes, that sounds good. Um, were there any numbers tied to it? Like what, like how do you measure success or do you, where would you like to that you can't yet, you know, just talk a little bit about ROI and measurement of, or, or even proof of efficacy. Yeah. So I owe you a thanks on this answer because when I was reading that article um, that I share with anybody and their mother who is considering the evangelist role one of, I forget who it was who said this, but one of them said, resist the temptation to measure everything, right? Because largely where we're playing is in spaces where there's not going to be direct attribution between what you do and, and what came out of it. And so the approach I take is um, try to measure a reasonable amount. So it's not just me living in an abyss being like, trust me, I'm helping. And so where we've landed um, for my role here, and it's still a work in progress, is of course, anytime I get a lead, let's say in my DMs in LinkedIn, I'll go to Salesforce and I will log the lead and the lead source will be evangelist, right? And then I'll assign it to the rep so that we can then pull a report for leads originated by source. And that shows just like the volume of leads um, that I'm contributing. And then we track what happens to those leads across the sales process. So that helps with leads. Second, for the places where I am doing keynotes or I'm joining, you know, sales calls or things like that, there's a box in Salesforce that I check that says evangelist influenced. Um, and then the the activity is logged by the individual AE and I'm tagged on that. But that again allows us to then say, outside of just leads originated, where are the opportunities where Jen is involved? And can we notice a delta between opportunities where Jen is involved versus Jen is not? 
And then that rolls up into a macro report that's just called like evangelist influenced opportunities. And so at the point today, I mean, I'll share with you, there's 5 million in evangelist influenced opportunities. And what the conversation I'm constantly having with our head of sales, marketing, our sales, you know, our new logo sales leader, our CEO is um, if we were to pull that out, is there a belief system they would have come anyway? Or can we make a point that the like these were people who wanted to have that initial safe conversation or these were deals where maybe they were struggling or they're stuck and we can observe there's a different outcome as a result of that. So it requires a lot of humility, honestly, because it's so easy to be like, yes, I influenced everything. But sometimes we need to step back and say, look, this is a customer who was going to buy anyway. I was part of the conversation, but whether or not I had been there wouldn't have been the deal breaker. But I think it's important to look at the, you know, the influence that we have even though like, you know, the podcast, I have no idea who these listeners are. I cannot tell you if those people come in. So the last thing, sorry, I just forgot is I finally got our company to change the, how did you hear about us from a drop down to a free form so that we can understand where is that demand being created as opposed to where it's being captured. So that's how I think about it. But like I said, work in progress, plenty of room for improvement. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelist, let's get back to it. Love it. Uh, for folks listening, um, A, the post or article that Jen referred to is a post that I wrote uh, three and a half years ago where I interviewed four chief evangelists. It, uh, I did not intend for this to happen, but it resulted in my uh, getting that role and title. And so if you just go, um, so she is Jennifer Allen on LinkedIn. I am Ethan Butte. Last name is B-E-U-T-E. If you go to my profile and you look at uh, Chief Evangelist at BombBomb, it's linked right there. You can see the graphic for it because just like you, Jed, people are like, what is this thing? Like, oh, here's an article. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just, it's a time saver. And it, it explains it a lot more succinctly, I think, than I can. So um, last thing here, and then we'll get into what inspired you to, to seek this out as a dedicated role instead of just generating all of this demand for yourself and converting it all yourself, you know, um, this opportunity for you to do it at a bigger scale and to, to benefit more people and in, in that way, benefit the company more. Um, when do you draw the line? And I ask this again, too, because I get involved in um, in both prospect relationships and or even pre-prospect relationships and of course, active account relationships for retention and renewal and, um, you know, reviewing what they're doing and making recommendations and all these other things. Um, when do you hand that opportunity off? And just your, your, by the way, smart work, like creating this in Salesforce and at least being able to start there, right? Because I assume that if you love what you're doing and it's working out and everybody loves you doing it, two years from now, that process will be even more refined and you'll have a lot of good insights and we'll have this as an ongoing conversation, like, you know, periodically on the show or in person or because we should meet someday in person. But um, when do you, I sometimes struggle with when do I hand this off? Like how far do I take it? And the way that I got there was I would be surprised if Jen influenced pipeline 
didn't outperform pipeline on average. And I say that just because of the nature of what gets that checkbox, right? If someone had a direct interaction with you digitally or in person, um, in video or through a post or from a stage or whatever, like they, they're buying the philosophy. They're at least getting introduced to the philosophy and the point of view at a deeper level than reviewing a web page and filling out a form. So I'd be mind blown if this did not turn out um, to, to satisfy whatever kind of personal emotional stuff you have wrapped up in that number. I, I, I'm, in, I'm in the benefit of your emotional well-being <laughs> on this. I think it's going to come to pass. But like, when, um, when do you get the checkbox slash when do you turn it over to a salesperson? Because my nature is that I just want to keep going. And then when they start asking really direct buying questions, like here's a hot one. And I, and I hand it to our sales leader who then distributes it based on our criteria. Gosh, I love this question because this is another thing that I wasn't. Thank you for saying that. That was like an eight minute question. (laughs) Oh, but I was following along because I remember I came from an individual contributor role. So I think there's a tendency in all of us when we've done the job, we're like, let's just see it through. But that doesn't really help anybody except our own egos. So I struggled with that a lot in the beginning. Where I've landed is I think it becomes very obvious to tell someone who is like, hey, I'm interested in your perspective on this problem and I have questions for you. And in my mind, my responsibility then is to say, all right, let's have a safe conversation. And my goal in that conversation is to get them a point where they either say, whoa, I've got a lot more learning to do or, hey, I'm ready to explore something. When someone says like, hey, I'm open to exploring it, that's when I'll pull in the AE and say, I'll make introductions and then set that baby free, right? Like, I do not need to be on all of those calls. We've got a highly competent, highly capable sales team. And I had to get comfortable just having confidence that, yes, I've invested work up front, but I got to have trust in my partners. Um, So that was a, a big lesson, candidly, for me as someone who came from the job of selling and I could easily get excited about continuing to sell for them. Um, which was hard. Yeah. Uh, okay. Take us back about a year. Um, yeah, just under. So, so you are, you know, you found this, I, I assume the revelation about LinkedIn being uh, a great way to express ideas that attracted like-minded people, or at least ask follow, like generated follow-up questions, et cetera. So you're doing that. You're realizing that that some of these other channels um, and methods are generating really good, really high quality demand for you personally. Um, you keep doing it, and perhaps maybe you have to start giving some of these opportunities you generated to other people. You started putting the pieces together. Like walk us out from there a little bit. Like um, what was the spark for you to say, I, I should be doing this full time. I think there's a business case for it. And you actually make the business case. Like what was the spark? How did you make the case? Who did you have to make the case to? And what were some of the considerations? Great question. So I, first of all, you're spot on. We have geographic territories. It's not like I reap what I sow. So it got to the point okay. where I was like, yeah, I had a couple of deals off of this, but I'm constantly handing them off. Like that was, that was a revelation for sure. Make no mistake. But I would say the larger thing was, if you look back on my career, about every two years, I have a role change. Now, I have essentially been with the same organization. It looks like three different companies, but that's just as a byproduct of mergers and acquisitions. I've effectively been for the same organization for 18 years. And I've been a frontline seller for 18 years. I've never wanted to go into management, leadership, any of that. I just think there's so much to learn in sales. It's always been a fun challenge for me. 
So I was hitting my almost two year mark. And one of the things I always do every two years is I sit down, I look at how I'm spending my time, what I'm spending my time doing and figuring out out of all that stuff, what are the things I dread and what are the things that light me up? And as a byproduct of that, it just so happened that last year in October timeframe, it was that two year mark. What I realized was like, don't get me wrong. I will always love selling a deal because of the commission check that follows it. Like we all love that, whether we say that or not. But what I found is like, as the deal would progress, it was kind of like, all right, now I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to sell the deal. And it wasn't really the part that was lighting me up. What I was becoming super lit up by was this earlier challenge of, could I get an executive to look at their business differently, look at their problems differently? And when I won that, it started to feel like how it used to feel when I closed a deal. And so I said, gosh, how do I do more of that? And then I started Googling. That's when I came across your article. I had no idea that job even existed. And so I read it. I listened to the podcast you did. I studied it. And then I sat there and I said, now, how am I going to make this something that's not just a win for me, but a win for Challenger? So I went to our old head of sales at the time, Kevin. And I said, look, I've got this crazy idea. Kevin was infamous for picking things apart and spotting things that people miss. So I knew I wanted my first entry point to be him because he'd shoot me straight and he'd be like, this is a dumb idea or you need to think differently about that. So I was looking for honest advice. So we all have those people in our business start there. So I went to him and I shared kind of my initial job description. He said, look, a lot of this is worded as to why this is good for Jen. You got to word this in why, why this is good for Challenger. And so I went back to the drawing board and I broke down, um, let me start high level. I wrote an email to our CEO who was very open-minded. So that's another just benefit I had going into how this. How large is, sorry, really quickly, how large is the organization ballpark? How many people? Um, about 250. We're not that big. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I went to her and I wrote an email and I said, you know, I've been reflecting on the, the problem that we have around, you know, not converting as many challenger fans to the challenger solution. I've been thinking about options for how we could attack that. Here are the five that come to mind. So evangelism was one of them. And then I had the other four, right? And then I said, now I've spent some time looking at this one. I know it sounds funky, but here's the description that stood out to me. And I pulled out one of the excerpts from the article. And then I said, now, there's a lot more here. So reference this if you want to learn more, recognizing that she probably would have to learn too. So I linked the article and I said, you know, I'm going to throw this out there. You can totally tell me to kick rocks, but here's how I would envision this looking, recognizing in year one, I don't have my name on a book. People aren't banging down my door for keynotes. So here's how I envision helping challenger, you know, embody the challenger principles, the things and broke down the activities. And then I said, externally, this is how I see elevating the voice and the platform of Challenger. I said, can we meet to discuss? Now, it sounds like a really long email. It really wasn't as long as I'm making it sound. And she wrote back and like most CEOs, it's short answer. She goes, you, you got my curiosity, let's talk. And so when I spoke to her, what I did is I brought the um, leads that I had originated and converted for my own pipeline and said, look, this is what I've been able to benefit from here. And then I showed her, but look, these are all the leads I passed and the deals that closed. And my benefit was like this. The company's benefit was like that, just because I've had different territories over time. Yeah. So I had like a large California presence, right? And so that's when I said to her, look, I can keep doing this and I will keep doing this because it's the right thing to do. But I'm telling you, like, I, I'm very passionate about the idea of doing this. Would you be willing to take a one-year bet on this? If it doesn't work or it's a bad investment, I'll go back into the line and you can put me as a seller. 
And she said, yes, but, yes, but I want you to carry, I still carry a bag because rip, and this is something I would say for anyone who is currently carrying a bag who wants to convert to an evangelist role is that means the organization has to fill your revenue gap. And that's a big problem, right? Especially for those of us that are very tenured and bring more than just, you know, our revenue performance, but we also have, you know, um, insight into customers and things like that. So we agreed that I would take a bag size that was smaller than what I had been carrying because the other way I looked at it was like, look, this is subject matter for me. It helps me stay close. And and in in retrospect, I'm glad I did it and also helped with compensation because you're still getting paid out on those deals. Um, So where we ended was just a a good middle ground. Now, next year, I'm not going to carry a bag, right? I'll still be involved in others' deals. And that's very, very important for me for the subject matter I speak about. Um, but that made it a low risk investment for the business. And I think that's the, the such a long way of saying it. Like that's the key for people who are coming up with this idea and, and wanting to get their leaders on board. So good. And we'll um I'll probably ask a couple specific things there. Um did how close a relationship did you have? Because what I'm what I'm keying in on here is you know, I'm in an incredibly high trust environment. I've worked with our two co-founders for two years before I joined them full-time 11 years ago. I'd worked with Steve, our CMO, whose idea it was to make me a chief evangelist for at, at that time, probably six years, um, like tight on all, on all the work, really high trust. And so I don't think anyone was really doing a calculus in the same way that your CEO had to kind of weigh it out a little bit. And, and, and make a bet. I also don't carry a sales quote and I'm not a direct, you know, I've never had direct revenue attribution either. I came up on the marketing side, but, um, talk a little bit about high trust versus low risk. How close a relationship did you have with your CEO? Like what I'm trying to get at is for someone that's either a, a CEO or another leader thinking about implementing, um, evangelism in a formal way through a role, or for someone thinking about making a case, I've talked with both. Um, and c- congratulations, by the way, I'm putting together a successful pitch to do what brings you to life <laughs> and brings the organization the most money, um, from your time and energy. Um, talk about that balance of high trust, low risk. Um, how should someone be thinking about it? Yeah. Um, so our CEO was actually just under a year into the job and she was an external hire. So it wasn't like she was someone I had a really long standing relationship with. Now she she viewed me positively. I knew that just from comments from my boss and other people. Um, but it wasn't like I had this long standing relationship. So for me, what was really important in my case was because I didn't have a super, super tight relationship with her, I wanted my mobilizers to go and advocate for this on my behalf. So before I ever sent that email and I probably should have said this. Sorry, I completely left that step out. Like Kevin went to her, my old head of sales and was like, hey, Jen's going to come to you with this idea. I know it sounds really wacko and the title is like nothing we've ever heard before, but this is why I get really excited about it. And so by the time I met with her, her kind of circle of trust had already primed her on it, which I think just like we face in sales, you can go to the quote unquote decision maker, but they often want to know, well, what does everybody else think? For me to name this person into this role we've never had that has a funky title, is that going to make me look bad, is always going to be a concern, I think, for CEOs. So if you have her you know, circle of support sitting there saying like, I know it sounds wacko, but here's what I think like I can get out of it. Here's what I think the business can get out of it. It reduces the risk for him or her 
And I think that's the important thing. If it's just a me versus her conversation and I don't have results to show from, you know, side of the desk efforts, I don't know. I think that would be a really hard one to win. I love it. I, and I love that. And I, I kind of drove by that too, just in in the way I followed up with you, like doing the work off the side of your desk for some period of time to even validate it to yourself so that as you do go to a your equivalent of a Kevin, you can do it with kind of confidence and not like, because it's already probably a little bit intimidating just the way yes. you described him. But um, so good. How... Um, how would you advise other people that you are in? Did we miss anything? I mean, he already gave some good advice for someone thinking about pitching this, but like um, any other things that that you would recommend either to uh, someone like your CEO who encounters this or is even thinking about it, him or herself, or someone who's thinking about pitching someone like her? Yeah. I mean, I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is do the job before you ask for the job. Because it is not a common job, people are going to be resistant and skeptical and unsure. And so if you're like, hey, I don't want to do a sales job anymore. I want to be an evangelist because it's working really well over at this company. That's a hard thing for a CEO to say yes to. And I've always been a believer of do the job you want before you have it. Not only just so you can show results, but just to make sure you even like it. Like if you know, it might be fun to post content on LinkedIn and do a podcast for two weeks, but if it's my full-time job, like, am I going to love that? Maybe not, right? So I think selfishly, there's a motivation there as well. And then for CEOs or people listening to, to internal employees making the pitch, I would say it's so important that we revisit our conventional belief system around what drives demand today. And I think before we say no or not now, We've really got to dig into where demand is being created for our business, have a hard conversation around, especially in a market like this, is that the best thing we can do? Like, are we willing to accept and tolerate this is the best we can do? And if the answer to that is no, I think now is the time to innovate, right? We look at all the companies that are born out of recessions or, you know, troublesome market dynamics. If we just keep doing the same things and expecting different results, like I think that's the definition of insanity. So I think it's a time to kind of let let go of our conventional belief system and really be open-minded to things like this. So good. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Matthew Sweezy, who is in essentially a form of an, I don't know that he would describe it this way, like a form of an evangelist. And he's done a bunch of other stuff too. Like he co-founded their Web3 lab and a bunch of other stuff at Salesforce. And the way he positions it is... Um, instead of asking like how to make our marketing, cause he's marketing focused, how to make our marketing essentially incrementally better. Like how do we get from 3% to 3.4%? So the better question is why isn't our marketing working? Cause yeah. that's a 90, that's a 97% failure rate, right? Yeah. Not that, not that the goal is a hundred. That's just plain unrealistic, sure. but you know, asking a better question, um, is going to provoke a lot of, of different thought. Um, I guess one of the last things I'll ask here is, um, the title, you refer to it as funky, <laughs> um, which is code language for I'm still not sure about it. And neither were the people that I was talking to. Yes. Um, talk about the title. Like, I, I know you were influenced to some degree by the fact that these other people had had it. And that was part of your inspiration for even pursuing this. But like, um, what do you think about the title? Is there something else? Because th that's going to be a thing we're going to be talking about on this podcast, I'm sure, because a lot of people don't like it, but no one has anything they like a lot better. And I do think some uniformity, and it's one of my motivations to even do this, 
um, is to create some kind of best practices or so like make it kind of mean something. Um, and I don't want to have to change the name of the podcast, even though we're still early. <laughs> anyway, talk about um, talk about the title and how you thought about it, how other people thought about it. And did you think about any other titles? I mean, I will say if anybody wants to know what happens when you switch your title on LinkedIn to chief evangelist, I'll send you the post. And it was just joke, joke, joke. Right. And I think for many people, evangelist, it's got like a religious connotation. Yeah. It's a word that meant something else before it meant what it is today. But I'm with you. Like, I want to see a world where there's consistency, even if I don't love the title, which candidly, I will be in the camp of I don't. But any other thing I've thought about, like chief storyteller, like I, I, I think this job largely is about telling stories, but I don't like how like presenty that is. Like, I'm going to talk at you and tell right. you a story, right? Like, that's also not good. So I'm in that camp of like, I just don't have a better alternative. And I don't want it to see it become this title where there's so many different versions of it. The one I will say that I think is worth exploring is like in my job right now, I don't have a formal community responsibility, but some other evangelists who I really like have a big portion of their job dedicated towards building community so there, I think there's different flavors of evangelism, but as long as the end goal is still the same, I think it's fine for us to just use the word until we come up with something better. Yeah, good. Um, that was awesome. And I and I, there is uh, we sh- we could definitely have another conversation on this podcast about community and some of these other things. How are you thinking about it? Where are we going? But for the sake of your time and listeners' time, uh, I guess I'll just ask. What do you think the future of evangelism is? Like, what do you hope for or what do you expect? Okay, this is my favorite question because my belief system is that what evangelists are doing today are going to be the things that all sellers have to do if they right. want to compete in the future, right? Like to me, evangelists are like the North Star of what good selling behavior looks like. And the reason I believe that is I don't care what, you know, company published it, if it was McKinsey or Sirius or Gartner, whoever, everybody's talking about that customers want a seller-free experience. They don't. They want a a experience that is completely devoid of bad selling. Like I've done my homework. Now I'm looking for point of view. Now I'm looking for perspective for prescription. And I only go to to shop around to people that I'm confident are going to be able to help me with that. That is not show up and throw up. So what I firmly, firmly believe is Maybe the evangelist role never becomes a mainstream role because the evangelists simply become, you know, a model for the rest of the sales organization to say, this is what y'all need to do. Because if you don't, you're never going to be invited to the conversation. So that's, that's my take on it, but who knows? Yeah, I love it. I I really, I like it because um, I think it's realistic and I think it's aspirational and it's founded in a very true reality. You're right. I mean, when people are coming and whatever the stat is, 60% of the way through the buying cycle, um, (laughs) they're looking for validation. They're looking for people to beat up their ideas, just like you described with your VP sales. Like, here's how I think about it. How am I thinking about it wrong? And and again, like um, I just had a a conversation on my other podcast with Todd Capone, who you may know, because he's also in the Chicago area. And uh, of course, he's a huge sales historian. And so he's read dozens of books written over 100 years ago on sales. And he isolated one for me where it was um, uh, the essence of sales as service or something like that. 
and it's, it's, and it's the same thing. It's the most progressive sales conversationalists and thought leaders are saying today, which is selling is helping always be closing is dead. It's always be helping. It's a, you know, it's a spirit of services. And that is exactly for everything you just said. It's what people need and want. And it's interesting too. Um, of course, Matt Dixon wrote the challenger sale with a team of folks. And, um, I just talked with him about the newer book, Jolt Effect. And, um, and this idea of, and this was really a distant background thing in there, but it was explicit in there yet, um, which was as ideas, options, information proliferates, the more we're going to need this person who is here to listen, here to help, deep expertise, cares a lot, um, and is the pre-sales or the salesperson. I mean, maybe we'll still have a closer role, like a specialist yeah. closer role. But we'll have more people doing the nature of work that you saw so effective and that you'll continue to evolve. So I love your vision. It's really hopeful. Fun question for you. Um, in your personal life, mm -hmm. is there a product or a service or an idea that you just naturally evangelize? Oh, my gosh. Yes. It's well, it's first. It's actually more of my business life. But yeah, that's I, fine. Like the first one that comes back, the, pro the lavender product, like. I, I think people actually might think I am sponsored to write comments on LinkedIn because I'm not full stop. I'd love to be, but I'm not. I just look at it and I, I, the problem it solves, which is essentially it's an AI tool that, you know, is a plug into your email. And instead of writing emails that are like, we are the leading provider of whatever, it corrects you in the moment. It helps you learn over time to write better. Like I am such an advocate of the problem it solves for that I cannot help myself to advocate. Anytime I see someone being like, has anyone tried lavender? I don't care what I'm doing. I stop and I write because I just believe in the problem. It's not even that I believe in the product as passionately. Like the product is a great product. It's a great solution. Don't get me wrong. I just want to see that problem solved. And that's what draws me so much into advocating or evangelizing for it for, for nothing. Yeah. Love it. Really good one. Um, Gosh, uh, anything that we didn't cover that you think is important for someone to know? And no is an okay answer because we I covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we covered a lot. We did cool. some work today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for ending your workday with me. I hope yeah. it's over, by the way. I don't want any more of those 16-hour days for you. <laughs> I know how that makes Jen mad. Yeah, saying no. Or angry. I forget what word you use. <laughs> anyway, um, for folks who enjoyed this and uh, and want to connect with you, they want to learn more about Challenger, they want to check out your podcast, where are some places you would send people? Good old LinkedIn. I live on LinkedIn. I love it. Hit me up in the DMs. If you hate Challenger and you want to tell me how much you hate it, I'm always down for those conversations. I don't need yes conversations all the time. Um, but I love learning. I love connecting with y'all. So definitely hit me up on Challenger and check out the, or on LinkedIn and then check out winning the Challenger sale podcast. If Challenger is something you abide by and you want to learn more. Cool. Um, by the way, I really love what you're doing there. I've heard about five episodes. I love the way that you're tying it in uh, thematically to the webinar teachings and that there's this like complimentary component. Yeah. Um, so well done. I'm a listener. You should be a listener too. As you're listening to this podcast, she is Jen Allen on LinkedIn, Jennifer Allen. Uh, I am Ethan Butte. Uh, we'd both be happy to see you on LinkedIn. Jen, thank you so much for your time. And um, I'm so glad that this whole thing brought us together. I could geek out with you any day. Thank you for having me on. It's a true pleasure. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. 
Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.